Thank you for listening to this podcast message from Stowe Presbyterian Church. This message was given by Pastor Bob Stanley. All right, guys, now you're going to have some breaks here and there in the summer, and I did this because I love you, because the book of Romans is heavy-duty stuff. Judging by attendance this Sunday, I'm guessing some of you knew we were talking about Romans 9, 14 through 29, and you looked it up. No, I'm just kidding about that, but Romans is a difficult book. It's a powerful book. It's one of those books of the Bible that is personal. It's powerful because it transforms our lives and our perspectives, but it's also a deeply doctrinal book. It really teaches us a lot of theology, and so we're taking time to understand it. And today we're going to look at one of those passages that really makes you stop and think. It's one of those passages that when you understand it, you have a deeper hunger to understand God's Word and to apply it to your life. It makes you want to dig in and really have clarity on what God is saying. And I hope that learning from God's Word and how we handle these difficult passages, and make no mistake, this passage we're looking at, Romans 9, 14 through 29, is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. It's one of the harder passages in Scripture. But yet, as we go through a book of the Bible, we go through a book of the Bible. It's in God's Word, and we will understand it. And when I think we understand it well, it not only gives us clarity, but it energizes us to live out our faith personally. Not so someone can say, hey, you know, I I heard this is in the Bible, and you can say, well... Here's what that means. Let me give you some doctrinal insight. And they'll say, man, that person, they're so smart. I'm going to go over and watch Jeopardy at their house. Uh, They're awesome. No, not because I think you want to do that. But when we have a deeper and fuller understanding of the Bible, we have right thinking toward God in our lives. We have right actions towards our friends, our families, and our neighbors. And we really live out the calling that God places upon our lives. And What I want to start with today is this. Understanding God's Word leads us to right thinking, a right understanding of ourselves, of our call in this world, and of others, why God put us here, who we are in Christ. And that right thinking, or like we sometimes have called it historically in the church, godly thinking leads us to right living as God's people. And as you just saw in the video this morning, that video about where the lady hadn't met the guy. Now, don't send me emails. I know that at the end of the video it said they'll never meet. What they were saying is they'll never meet on this earth. We know that in heaven that that's maybe a different story. That's fine. But you can have a profound impact on someone right down the street from you through a chain of events and relationships, and you never recognize what you've done for God's kingdom. That's important for us to remember. Right thinking, a right understanding from God's word can lead us to right living as God's people. So let's take a look here at Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? 
Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in this very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the numbers of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth, fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts has not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is one of those passages, at the end of it, you think, wow, there's a lot of stuff packed in there. So let's take a look at this this morning and, and learn a little more about this. We're going to learn a little more from God's word about what this means. And the question that you probably pick up as you look at this passage, are we free? Are we free? Do we have freedom to choose as we want to? Or is God really in his sovereign power in control of all things? Are we in control? And then are we accountable for what we do? If that's true, how is God almighty? How is he powerful over all things if we're under God's power? There's lots of movies that deal with this. There's one called Predestination that came out a few years ago. I'm not recommending it. There's another one called Inception. Was it, is this illusion? Is this reality? If you've seen that, like, what's that movie, like nine hours long or something? Have you ever seen that movie? It's the longest movie in history. You know, what's, who's, who's really doing what? Am I really perceiving this? What's happening? What's up? What's down? What's true? What's real? Lots of pop culture, lots of history and literature and in media, we've always tried to decide this idea. Are we born with certain unavoidable, seemingly inevitable ends? Here's an example of this, because pastors and philosophers, Plato and Aristotle and philosophers talk about this in history. We talk about it in art and in media. Here's an example from a seminary. So this guy goes into seminary and he starts in his classes and his first year there, a big debate erupts in the seminary among all the, the would-be pastors and students. And it's over this idea of election that we talked about, that God chooses and he calls people, and this idea of free will. Well, no, you know, God gives everybody a chance, and I, I'm going to choose God, and this is how it works. And it became so fierce and so difficult that the seminary, basically, the class split, it, split into two completely different groups. The first group was all about election, God's power. We start with God. Everything starts and ends in God, and, and that's what matters. And we have to understand that that's the most important thing. And the student in the middle watched that, and he saw the other group. The other group in Emerge felt that nothing existed outside, uh, relatively, of, of our human experience. We can't really understand things unless God shows us. So God gives us all these evidences, and we have to figure it out. We have to choose God. So this student in the middle, he didn't know what to do. So as he prayed about it, as he thought about it, he said, you know, I really think God is God. I'm going to start with him. God must, you know, do the electing and the choosing like we talked about a couple weeks ago. And so he said, I'm going to go there. So he goes over to that group, and as he gets there, they said, by what force or what reason have you decided to come be a part of our group? Why did you decide to come? How did you end up here? Who sent you here? 
And he said, I, I don't know. I just really thought about it. And I just decided that I just chose this as the group where I needed to be. And they said, get out of here. You're not one of us. You don't even know what you're talking about. Very upset and very frustrated, he left. And he went over to the other group and he walked in on that side. And, and they said, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you doing over here? Why are you here? Why are you here? Why did you choose to come over here? He goes, hey, look, I don't even know what's going on. I didn't really choose to come here. Somebody sent me here. And they threw him out. Think about that one for a minute. It'll, it'll kick in in a minute. This is often how we look at the deep spiritual things that happen in our world. This is what we look. And I think today's passage we're going to see has less to do with this idea of human freedom and human choice. That's what we always try to read this passage and figure out. Everybody tries to look at this passage and figure this out. When I talk about the idea of sovereign freedom here in this passage, I'm not talking about us. We're talking about God. We're talking about that God is free to do as he pleases because he is God. And we have to remember not to place God in our human box because God is the one who decides what's good and what's right and what's true, and he determines right and wrong, and he operates based on his eternal will outside of time and space. Aristotle, one of those philosophers that's debated this stuff like the students did, he often called God the unmoved mover. Everything that moves is because God sets it into motion. He is not bound. He is not in any way affected by anything else, and it does not matter what anyone else says or does, God is still God. And in Romans 9 here, as we talked about election and reprobation and all these difficult things, this chapter is not really about this. It's more the backdrop. It's more the foundation where God is trying to put us into motion. It's where God tells us that we should have a burden to share our faith like we saw talked about this morning. This passage is where Paul reminds us that God alone is free and God alone has set things into motion. And our job is to understand who God has called us to be and what God has called us to do. God is the one who is free. God is the one who has the power. He's the one that's doing work in this world. And our job as God's creations is to understand who God is and what he's doing. And we're called to be a part of it. And we often end up caught up in these debates and we want to know things like, is God fair? Is God being fair here? Because we read this passage and God says, hey, I'm going to do what I want to do. I have things figured out. I'm going to say to this person, come, and I'm going to say to this person, no. And we struggle with that. And we struggle with that not because of who God is, though we think that's the problem. We start debating why would God say this? Why would God do this? Who is God to be like this? Who is God to be like that? But we have to remember that God is not like us. His motives, his character, who God is, is it's completely, it's otherworldly different than us. Christ comes so that we can have God made in the flesh and understand God because God in the fullness of his power and his glory is beyond anything that we could ever understand. We've all read passages like Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, where God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways aren't like your ways, and the heavens are higher than the earth. My ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are beyond anything that you guys could ever understand. And when God says that, we have to remember. We have to remember that God has an eternal perspective, far different 
than ours. God isn't like us. So our concepts of fairness and justice, right and wrong, all these things, they're different than God's. God constantly reminds us he has the right to do things, and he can do things differently than us. For example, we have different ideas of justice and fairness. Have you ever decided that something was good, not really on the merits of whether it was good, but because it was good for you? Have you ever decided, for example, say this didn't happen in my house yesterday, for example, we said, you know what would be good? Going out for barbecue would be good. It would be deliciously good. We should go have some barbecue. Now, I think barbecue is an absolute good, and it's, it's like what God would say, it's the most wonderful thing in the world. But is barbecue in and of itself a, a perfect good? Maybe. But is it really that that was the best thing we needed to do? No, we wanted barbecue, so we went and had it. That's okay. Have you ever decided something that's not good? Barbecue might be a perfect good. Have you ever decided to do something that was really bad? It was sinful. It was wrong. It was just a bad thing. But you said, you know what? I'm going to go do that today. And I'm going to convince myself and maybe convince someone else it's a good thing to do. Have you ever done that? Has someone ever done that to you? If you say no, the pastor knows you're lying, and that's okay. But we've all done that before. I've done things that are bad. For example, none of us have, never, have ever needed a Twinkie. There has been zero times in the history of the world that anyone has ever needed a Twinkie. It's like, I don't know, plutonium and foam-packing peanuts and whatever that icing is, that it like has a half-life of four billion years, like it never goes bad, right? Is there anything redeemingly healthy or good in a Twinkie? There is nothing good in a Twinkie. You can leave a Twinkie out in the desert in the sun for a year and come back and it would look the same. That is not of this earth, right? And yet Twinkies went out of business, like they stopped making them, and we brought them back like there was something good about them that we needed. I mean, seriously. I, I, I used to, like, I saw one the other day. It's, it's, it's a cake, but it sweats, like oil, and I don't even know what it is. But we say, you know what I could use today? A Twinkie. I used to devour Twinkies. I thought they were great, but they're not good. I would have said ice cream is that example, but we have some, some beautiful people in our church that own an ice cream stand, and their ice cream is delicious, so we're not going to say that. Plus, ice cream might be like barbecue and absolute good. I'm pretty well convinced of that. But, it's, you know, but I mean, let's be serious. There are things that we convince ourselves in this life that are good because sin distorts our heart and our soul and our perspective. It can enslave us, and it can cause us to not just harm ourselves, but to harm other people people. Throughout God's word, we see Abraham, David, Moses, the prophets, and others being told by God that he alone is the righteous one, even the just, the righteous judge. He's the one that sees all of human history and beyond. He's the one that sets it in motion. He's the one that controls all of it. God is the one. And here Paul gives us some examples, starting in verse 15. Starting in verse 15, 
Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. So if we look at Romans 9, 15, 16, look, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will, which is good because we eat a lot of Twinkies, or exertion. We do a lot of sin. We do. But it depends on God who has mercy. Every time we sin, we are placing blank thing ahead of God. So Mount Sinai, this is uh, Exodus 33. God goes up on the mountain with Moses, and he goes up and meets. Moses has just brought Israel out of physical slavery and bondage in Egypt, and they They've defeated the most powerful army on the earth. They've crossed the Red Sea in miraculous fashion. All the plagues, God's supernatural power frees them. It's incredible. God frees them. And Moses goes up where God says, you're called out. You're my people. I've come for you. You belong to me. I'm going to set you apart. I'm going to give you my law. And the Ten Commandments are part of what happens up there. God writes with his fingers, here, you had a post-it note in the Garden of Eden. Don't eat this. Don't do that. We blew that. Here's 10. Just try 10. Not good at that. Moses is up on the mountain for about 40 days. And as he come down, as he's coming down, he hears this noise. This is where this context from the Old Testament helps us understand the New Testament. Like we've been seeing in Romans chapter 9. We've got to go back. So when you see a quote here, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, God is now talking to Moses Paul is quoting this in, in Exodus 33. Moses hears all this stuff. He goes down the mountain. He hears what he thinks is a battle. He's like, I thought all the Egyptians were dead. Is it the Canaanites? What's happening? They shouldn't be over here yet. We're not there. What's going on? He goes down the mountain, and they're having a party. And not a good party. They're having a pretty naughty party. Far beyond Twinkies naughty. Okay? So... 40 days, Moses has gone a little over a month. They're like, well, he must be dead. Who knows where that God that let us out went. I know what we'll do. We're going to make a golden cow and dance around and do all kinds of other bad stuff. And that's going to be our God like all the other nations do. Hey, Aaron, you're the high priest. Here's a bunch of jewelry that we got from the Egyptians that they gave us because God freed us and they were just sick of us and all of our plagues. Make us a cow. And what's he go? Oh, sure. Great. Okay, lesson one. Pastors are not magical. Aaron's supposed to be the high priest, and he stunk in that situation, didn't he? But they made an idol. Moses goes back up to God after he does a Charlton Heston smashing the Ten Commandments and destroying the calf. I think he went down and just literally beat it into oblivion, just so you know. I think he walked down with his tablets and smashed it to bits, looked at them all, and just walked back up the hill. Which would have been actually way more awesome had they done that. You guys know the Ten Commandments is just a movie. We did not have a camera crew there, right, in Exodus. <laughs> I'm amazed how many people transposed the movie. I love Charlton Heston, dude, but, I mean, it's a movie, right? Okay, so he goes back up and says to God, what the what? Don't look at me. I was up here with you. And what's God say to him? You know what? I should just nuke these guys right now. Fry you turkeys. You don't deserve what I just did for you. And Moses is like, that's what I'm talking about. And God says, but I'm not. I'm not going to do that. 
They sinned. They made an idol. They did. They're, they're doing it wrong. In fact, that first commandment I just gave you says what? You will have no other gods, no other anything before me. This has come up in Romans before, hasn't it? We talked about this. But you know what, Moses? Really, Israel's no better than Egypt. I just chose Israel. You think Egypt is any less human than Israel? This is where Christians, this is where Americans have to remember we're God's people because we belong to him. Those who Christ has claimed in China are God's people because they belong to him. Or in Africa, or in Asia, or in Europe, or anywhere else, we're God's children because he captivates our hearts. And he says, Moses, remember, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion because I am God. And it's not about your human exertion. It's about me. I'm the one who has mercy. Think about that for a minute. Think about what that means. I will have mercy. Think about what it means that you have idolatry in your heart. And you may say, I would never worship a golden cow. Maybe it's not a golden cow, but what is it? Is it your work? Is it your prominence, your prestige, your attitude? Is it what people think of you? Is it your physical appearance? Everybody keeps coming up to me and going, man, you look great. You've lost all this weight. Thank you very much. You know what? I'm still the same sinful, dorky guy I was before. I appreciate that. I will never have abs of steel. I have abs of Twinkie, maybe. I don't know, but... Think about, though, what you make an idol. John Calvin, one of the fathers of our tradition, says our hearts are just little idol factories that pump them out all day long. Whatever you put between you and God, that blank is your idol. And God says, don't worry, it's not about how hard you're working or what you're thinking because you're not God. You're not God. That's how it works. So we learned last week, we're never saved by our efforts. We're never saved because we have prominence or we have a lot of gifts to offer. We have a lot of prestige. God isn't like a general manager in a sports team that drafts us in the late rounds of the draft because we have raw spiritual potential that can be cultivated or developed to be that super Christian leader. That's not how God operates. He says, that person has got nothing going for them but they belong to me. They belong to me. We need to remember that God changes hearts not because we deserve it, but because he is God. We don't deserve mercy. We don't, even though we get it. And if we didn't sin, if we weren't beyond any hope of recovery, if we weren't even beyond choosing God, it wouldn't really be mercy, would it? Mercy is what you don't deserve, not what you could sort of deserve. Mercy is when you are 100% guilty and God says, that's okay. You're still mine. And that's what he tells Moses. But on the other side, God says here, he says, Pharaoh's heart, I hardened. And Pharaoh specifically mentioned in this context, and remember we talked about election and reprobation. But what does this mean? Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Now we talked about reprobation and God's sin. And Adam and Eve, and like all of us, it's not that we just choose sin, we like sin. Just remember that, we like the sin. It's the natural way we're bent. And Pharaoh, 
Just like all of us, he likes sin too. And he had all these opportunities, and man, he used them for his own benefit. Everything the world had to offer was Pharaoh's. He decided whether nations rose or fell. He had the most powerful army on earth. And God says, you know what? I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He comes to Moses in Exodus 7, and he says, I'm going to harden his heart. Now after that, like seven or eight other times, Pharaoh decides that he's going to harden his heart, even when his people are begging him, no, let him go, just let him go. Look what's going on. And Pharaoh says, no. Who do they think they are? Do they know who I am? Have you ever found yourself thinking that? Does God know what I've done? Does God know what I've been through? The answer is yes. But do you know who you are? Do I? You and I are complete and utter sinners, just like Pharaoh. We need to be careful about condemning God for rightfully judging all of us when God grants mercy to some of us, and I have no idea why. But I thank God that his justice and his mercy is different than mine. In fact, if you find yourself saying, who does God think he is, you probably have far too high a view of yourself. And therefore, in that distortion, you have far too low a view of God. You remember the old balance scales? If you tip the scale in your favor so you're up, you're going to be pushing God down. Because in our sin, just like Adam and Eve, we always confuse ourselves with God. Verse 17 in Romans 9, Pharaoh was placed in power. He was placed in that position, not for his own sake, but to do what? For this very purpose I have raised up Pharaoh, that I might show my power, God's power in you, and that not Pharaoh's name, my name, might be proclaimed in all the earth. So he has mercy on whoever he has mercy. But God's not thwarting Pharaoh's free will. Pharaoh, without God's grace, he, he wants to do it. He wants to do all the things he does. He's the one that's hardening his heart. He's the one that's doing it over and over and over again. Why? Because salvation is about God's purposes. We think in our sinfulness and our self-centeredness that salvation is all about us. We think God saves us because he's really lonely and he needs us. We think that God does it for us. We always say, oh, God loves us, but we emphasize the us, not the loves and not the God. What Paul wants us to see, what Paul wants us to understand, is that when we ask the same questions of God over and over and over, we need to stop and listen to what he says. And he offers two examples to explain this, and we're going to close with this today, the potter and the prophets. We ask God those same questions. Where were you, God? Why is this happening, God? God, this is so unfair. Do you know what I've done for you, God? Where are you, God? And again, Paul takes us back to the Old Testament. The potter and the clay. Do you remember that story? Does not the potter have power over the clay to mold the clay however he wants? Will what's molded say to the molder, why have you made this? 
Notice again, that's quoted. And like we're learning in Romans, when you see something in the New Testament, there's cross-references cross in the middle of your Bible that give you Old Testament verses. When you find one of those, go back and read the Old Testament passage to get the context, to get the background on what's being talked about here. This is Jeremiah 18. God's trying to teach Jeremiah how he works. So he says, go down and see the potter. So Jeremiah does it. He goes down and he listens. And Paul says, remember, the potter decides what the clay looks like. God molds us with us and through us. Remember Romans 8.28, God molds us and works out all things, even the terrible things for our good, but he does mold us through the good things, through the bad things, through the unfair, horrible things, and through the wonderful blessings, God is molding us. And what God taught Jeremiah, what God's teaching us is he is the one who has the freedom and the power to do anything because he is God. He is molding us. He is changing us. We always want to change things about our world. We want to change things about ourselves. And yet God says you can't change those things. Aristotle had it right. How many of you can tell God what day you're born? How many of us can tell God what day we leave this earth? Sure, I could go to the Bosley Hair Clinic and get fake test tube hair back, but it would never be as gorgeous as my Thor-like blonde locks were when I was a young man. We all have things that we can't change about ourselves, don't we? You know what God's saying? Don't worry about that. How can God use those things, even those hard things, to not only change your life, but to mold the life of someone else. Did you catch the video this morning? The one guy in the video that changed the other guy's life was in a wheelchair because he got hit by a drunk driver. And yet God took that, all things, and molded that into something beautiful. Everybody gets caught up in this passage on the wrong things. We all ask the wrong questions. Is God going to harden your heart like he did Pharaoh's? Is God just going to use you? Is God going to manipulate you? Is he that kind of cruel, horrible God? No, God's not going to harden your heart. He loves you. He's called you. And if you're even asking that question out of fear, that's the Holy Spirit at work in your life, and you're okay, first of all, just so you know. But secondly, no, God wants to redeem your life and transform it. God's not going to harden your heart. You belong to him. But does God harden hearts? He does. I don't think I need to tell you guys that. You probably work for one of those people. Maybe somebody here was raised by one of those people. Can God even redeem the horrible things? Was God in the midst of those things? You better believe it. You better believe it. So God won't harden your heart, but make sure that you don't harden your own heart. Hebrews 3.8 reminds us, and it goes back to Israel in the wilderness. It says, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Don't be like God's people. Where remember, the difference between Egypt and Israel was God's presence transforming their lives. Friends, the point of this passage is simple. The only one who's free is God. And when he calls you back and says, don't do this, no, stop, don't do that, we need to accept and repent of what God is calling us to do and to be because he alone has the power, the knowledge, and the goodness to change you. So listen to him. Get in his word. Seek him. A couple of you shared me this morning how in your devotionals, 
God has been telling you right what you needed to hear right when you needed to hear it. That's awesome. That's what we need to be doing is listening and seeking God. Four ways we do this, the things we need to learn from this passage, four things as we close. Worship and pure thankfulness. If you understand that God is at work, that he is sovereign, that he is powerful, that he is doing all these things, that should lead us to rejoice that he draws us back in. When we make idols over and over again and God says, no, no, you belong to me and I will choose you. Not because you're worth it, but because I chose you, because I love you, because I'm God. That should drive us to our knees. If that doesn't make you worship God, you may not understand what it means that you are a sinner completely dead in your sin and God says, hey, come with me. Get up. Right in the midst of the partying, he says to Moses, no, these are my people. That doesn't just change your perspective on yourself. It should change your perspective on everything. You should be humble in everything. How you interact with other people. When you see someone drunk, passed out in the street, you should remember, therefore, by the grace of God, go I. If I hear one more Christian look down their nose at someone, you have no right to look down your nose at anyone. You're a sinner saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by the sovereign freedom of Jesus Christ and God the Father who freely came, Jesus did, to give his life for you and the Father freely sent his one and only Son and you didn't do a darn thing to earn it and neither did I. How are you going to love and serve other people? How are you going to share your faith with other people? Pastor, we need more people in this church. Great, go tell them about Jesus. That's it. I tell everybody I meet, when they find out I'm a pastor, they're freaked out. But if you tell them I'm just a normal person, they don't think you're getting paid to do it. Not how it works. Share. Shout that gospel everywhere. If your life has been changed, you're not going to help but want to do it anyhow. And the last thing is, if you recognize this, this passage shouldn't make you afraid of God. It shouldn't make you think, who is God that he's doing this? It should make you thankful that God can and would and should do all these things to us. But he says, you know what? I'm a God of mercy. I'm a God of grace and of love. And I want to transform you. And I'm going to use you, not because you deserve it, just because I love you. The more you recognize you're free in God's love and in God's mercy, the easier it is to share with other people. I've heard so many pastors, I heard a pastor talk about this last night, you can come up with the most eloquent ways to share your faith. That's not what God's asking you to do. All God wants you to do is go up to somebody and say, hey, how are you? Get to know them. And in the simplest of ways, by you being the person God is molding you and God is shaping you into being, by you just being that person, brokenness and warts and all, God will use that to transform lives and call other people to know him. And if that were to become the core identity of this church, of our lives, of all of our interactions, God would use us to change the world around us. You think about that. Let's pray. God, in each and every way, that we would know that you are the potter and we are the clay and thank goodness you can mold us because we can't shape ourselves and 
Though we all would naturally head to destruction like Pharaoh, that's the way we're built. That even in our sin, even when we build up idols, you say, I love you. You belong to me. I'm going to shape you. I'm going to grab a hold of you. I'm going to change you. And I'm going to wrap my arms around you to love you. God, that you would make that. God, that you would make that the way that you guide our lives every day. You would make that the cry of our hearts that we would understand that we would be changed by that call to worship you in truth, to share you and everything we do, to look at other people with love and mercy because we're all sinners saved by grace and that we would proclaim the truth of the gospel, not just in some huge way, God, but in every little thing that we do, that we would love and serve other people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.